everyone, and welcome back to the Dead Letters Podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who listened to the first episode, as well as to all of those who gave me a nice warm welcome to the podcasting and audio drama community. I've been interacting with a lot of creators and their shows, and it's so inspiring to see what else is out there and get such a nice welcome into this little neck of the internet woods. Um, I also want to give a thank you to my beta readers, Alex and Atticus, who are two of my writer friends from Twitter, and they graciously volunteered to read over the script for this back when it was in its draft stage, and their input definitely made the project better, more feasible, so I am really grateful to those guys, as well as a few of the other people who I'm going unnamed who gave me feedback on this project. Also, real quick, I got a question about the PayPal donations. A link to how you can support the show via PayPal and other non-monetary ways are now going to be on all episodes, so it's way easier to find. It's going to be under support the show in the episode descriptions. I'm also considering a Patreon program, but I want to see how these first few episodes go before I start something like that. If it seems like something you'd be interested in, please let me know by commenting or reaching out on social media so I know I can spend some time making that a reality. As always, you can follow the show at Dead Letters Pod on Twitter and Facebook. You can also follow me, VP Morris, at TWriteRepeat, that's T-E-A-W-R-I-T-E, repeat, on Instagram and Twitter. Before we get into today's episode, I'm going to give you a quick recap of what happened last time. In episode one, Fiona received her first letter from the mysterious Charlotte who claims to be writing from 1875. She warns Fiona against eating white meat, answering the doors on days that start with the letter T, and ignoring the man she sees in the shadows. After preventing her friends from eating some poisoned chicken, she is now taking Charlotte's warnings much more seriously. However, it's a Tuesday, and someone's at the door. Let's get into it. The Dead Letters Podcast, Episode 2, The Man in Black. The doorbell rang a second time. I sat on my bed, clutching the letter in my hands. I didn't even remember picking it up. It rang again, and my heart leapt into my throat. Fine, I'll get it, yelled Grace from her room. She walked downstairs, and the hinge of the front door squeaked open. Fiona, it's for you, she called up to me. A man's muffled voice said something to her. I knew it must be a murderer, or a rapist, or at the very least a robber, coming to tie us up and rip all the electronics from our home. With terror grasping my throat, I said, Tell him to leave! But it wasn't loud enough for her to hear. Footsteps rushed up the stairs, and Grace threw open my door. Fiona, what's wrong with you? she asked. Who is it? I whispered. Paul, your boyfriend? He said he forgot to kiss you goodbye, she said with her arms folded across her cardigan. I could tell she was not happy having her studying time interrupted by what she thought was relationship troubles. Oh, right. I got off my bed and walked past Grace, who promptly rolled her eyes and went back into her room. I went over to Paul, who was standing by the door. He gave me his I'm sorry look that consisted of wide eyes and a dramatic frown. It's adorable and impossible to resist, like a guilty-looking puppy. With my arms wrapped around him, we kissed. Hey, sorry I left without saying goodbye. The right way. This whole poisoning thing has me on edge. He explained with his sky-blue eyes beaming at me. It's okay. It really shook me up too. I hugged him harder. I'm working the early shift tomorrow, so I can pick you up after class. 
Morgan told me that she and Grace are going to a study group all evening, and it'll be a nice time for us to have a romantic date together. I'll make dinner, light candles, the whole thing. He lifted my hand to his lips and lightly kissed them. I was swooning on the inside, hoping it didn't show. Sounds lovely, I told him. Good, see you then. He kissed me once more and left. A week or so had passed, and the nightmares and awful visions that were brought on by the letter were gone. Paul and I had our romantic date night, which comforted me and made me feel closer to him. The campus opened its doors once again, and class schedule resumed as usual. Soon, there was an announcement that a disgruntled employee who had just been fired was the one responsible for poisoning the chicken that night. Knowing the culprit was in custody, and everyone was going to be alright, I was lulled into a false sense of safety. The 14-day window that Charlotte had warned me about was almost over, and I felt like I had seen the worst of it. However, I awoke that Thursday morning in a panic. Not because of something to do with Charlotte's prophecy, but because I had forgotten to finish the assigned reading for Gothic literature class that day. After quickly showering and dressing, I sped read through the final chapters of Rebecca as I shoved plain Cheerios, no milk, into my mouth. Even though I finished the book, by the time I left for class, I knew I would only stumble my way through the discussion. And that was the worst part about being an English Lit major. All of the participation was mandatory. Professor White created a rule that everyone in class had to make at least one unique statement about the book and had to make two comments on other students' statements per week. He would point out any student who failed to finish the reading material on time and would force them to do a 15-minute presentation on a randomly assigned short story in front of everyone next class. The thought of presenting anything to anyone made my stomach clamp up and my palms sweaty. I slid into the tiny blue seat in the third row and waited for class to begin. Professor White entered the room, clutching several books in one hand and a Starbucks cup in the other. He was a handsome man for someone in his 50s, looking even more dignified than men his age with a custom sports jacket and fine Italian shoes. Many of the girls who first took his class developed crushes on him, only to have their hopes ruined when they learned he had a husband. Morning all, he said. The class let out a barely audible grunt. I said, morning all, the professor repeated. Morning, we all said in unison. That's more like it. Give life a little more enthusiasm, why don't ya? I don't want another dull, low-energy class today, or I'm gonna have to get another caramel macchiato, and I might get so hopped on caffeine that I'll give you a pop quiz. We all groaned. Well, if you don't like the idea of a pop quiz, give me a lively and passionate discussion today. He clapped his hands in excitement. I know we had a bit of a terrifying ordeal happen in the last few days. I understand if we were a bit unfocused, but let's not let the perpetrator win by having him distract us from our education. And with that being said, Melanie, why don't you give us your thoughts on Rebecca? He pointed to a girl in the back of the room with a nose ring. I thought it was like, sick man, she said reclining in her seat. Sick? He said. Yeah, like, mad scary. This chick dresses up as a dead dude's wife and then scares everyone. She's all freaked out and then wants to kill herself and like, dead bodies keep washing up on shore. And I was like, drama. Melanie laughed and the class joined her. Yes, that's an interesting analysis. Professor White stood in front of a pasty kid with his hood up. 
Daniel, what about you? I mean, it was cool, but like, not as good as the others, said Daniel. What others now? Well, you know, we just read Dracula and Frankenstein and like, those blew my mind. I mean, they really said something about death and mortality and life and stuff, but this one, I don't know, said Daniel. All right, you do bring up an interesting point. Now, what similarities do you see between Rebecca and anything else we've read this semester? He looked across the sea of quiet young faces. If the most annoying girl in school, Julia, had been in class that day, she would be sitting up front with her hand in the air beckoning for Professor White's attention. She would then give him a long and mostly incorrect analysis, which the professor would promptly ignore. But without Julia's need to make her opinions heard whenever possible, the class was left silent. Come on, people. One small thing they have in common. No one answered. Hmm, he put his hand on his chin. Do I need to remind you of our participation policy? Because at this point, it looks like most of you will have a presentation due in the future. The very near future. The last thing I wanted to deal with right now was an additional assignment, especially one that involved public speaking. I forced my hand up. Yes, Fiona, that's the spirit. They all have young female characters who are unknowingly stalked by danger. I believe that is one of the hallmarks of Gothic lit. I told him. Very good. The professor came closer and leaned against my desk. Now, what do you think the reason is for this? What points are the authors trying to make? It's a juxtaposition that leads to terror. Women tend to be viewed as both weak and precious, putting a woman, especially a young, attractive, and virginal woman in danger represents societal attitudes towards the value of women as wives and mothers, as people who need saving, not agents who take action to protect themselves or even just act in their own self-interest. Amazing work, Fiona. What an insightful comment. Looks like no presentation for you, he beamed at me. I smiled back at him and let a sigh of relief escape my chest. He moved on to terrorizing another student and I slumped back in my seat, turning my head slightly to gaze out the second story window. It was a gorgeous fall day. The wind swirled yellow and orange leaves around the quad, littering the green grass like it was nature's confetti. A large gust of wind rose up and made a whooshing noise against the window. Some of the students jumped in their seats. Relax, children, it's only the wind, chuckled Professor White. But as the wind rattled the trees and pushed back the tall bushes that covered part of the first floor of the building across from us, I saw a man dressed in all black. A low-hanging hoodie covered his face as he hid in the hedges. Even though I couldn't make out a face, I could feel his eyes burning a white-hot hatred into me. I narrowed my vision, trying to figure out who this person might be when Professor White called out my name. Fiona, do you have anything to add? He asked. Add to, I asked, feeling my cheeks redden with embarrassment for getting caught off guard by the professor. To Connor's point here about the use of fire in the novel. He answered me. What does it mean to you? I knew the answer instinctively. Rebirth through complete destruction. Several hours, one study break, and one long statistics class later, I found myself waiting for Paul in the parking lot. Now that the sun was setting before I got out of class, I made him promise to drive me home from now on, but I had been waiting for 10 minutes with no sign of him. Just as I pulled my phone out to text him, I noticed a missed voicemail. Pressing play, I heard Paul's voice on the recording. Hey babe, it's me. 
I'm sorry I can't pick you up tonight. I know I promised and I'm real sorry, but it's Rick. He needs me to cover a shift tonight. Two other delivery guys got fired for stealing, so I'm the only one left. I'll make it up to you later. I promise. Just get home safe. I love you. Bye. Damn it, I said to myself. Instead of going home in Paul's comfortable yet outdated Nissan, I'd have to walk the dark streets alone. And after seeing that man in the bushes, I was more on edge than ever. With a lump in my chest, I'd put on my backpack and began to power walk down the sidewalk and out of the school's gates, looking back as the warm lights of campus faded behind me. My eyes dashed from side to side, looking in every direction for the man in black. As I turned to look behind me, my foot snagged on a branch that had fallen from the wind. I lunged forward, almost falling to the ground, but I regained my balance. But as I steadied myself, I heard a distinct scratching sound, like the noise of someone slowly moving a trash can on an asphalt road. My head snapped around. For a split second, a bright blue trash can at one of the houses on the street behind me wobbled back and forth like someone had dashed behind it, pushing it forward in the process. Unlike the last time this happened to me, I didn't stop to investigate. I picked up the pace and forced myself to continue. This time, I kept my eyes cast down, studying the sidewalk for anything that might cause me to trip. I wasn't about to let myself fall down like some idiot girl in a horror movie. My safest bet was to just keep moving. At each step, I told myself, as soon as you get home, you'll be safe. With my eyes cast down and my feet carrying me as fast as they could, I was making ground. But without looking for familiar landmarks to guide me home, I lost track of how many blocks I had walked. Had it been four blocks already? Or only three? Did I miss my turn at McAllister Street? My gaze drifted up the sidewalk in front of me, in search of a street sign. But in front of me, I saw him. The man in black. He was standing at the end of the street, right where I needed to make my turn to go home. His face was still hidden, with only a chin and his bottom lip exposed. He crept forward and I jumped. I dashed across the street and ran up to the front door of the house nearest to me. Please let me in. There's a man out here and he's trying to get me. He's been stalking me for weeks. I shouted at the door as I pounded on it. An elderly woman opened the door. What is it, dear? She asked me. There's a man out here, and I think he's going to kill me, I cried. She pulled me by the forearm inside her house, turned the deadbolt, and put the chain over the door. No worries, sweetie. No one will get you in here, she said as she punched a code into a white keypad in her living room. System alarmed, said a robotic female voice. Let's call the police, she said, dialing the phone. Only a few minutes later, a police car appeared in the old woman's driveway. In the kitchen, one male and one female cop stood in front of me. What did you see? The female cop asked me. A man in black clothes, following me, hiding in the bushes. He was wearing a large hoodie and had the hood all the way over his face. I could only see his chin. I have no idea who this could be, I explained, trying not to sound like a scared little girl. Actually, we do. I looked at her in shock. Two men, dressed in all black, have been working together, mugging people out after dark around this area. We didn't think that they came down this far into this neighborhood, but it looks like they have now. We have cars out patrolling the area. We'll try to pick them up before they can strike again, the officer explained. The two officers continued to take down my statement, and they told me that they would let me know of any developments. Then they drove me the two remaining blocks to my house. The place was dark and cold as I entered. Neither Morgan or Grace had returned home for the evening. I went upstairs and sat in my bed. I hugged a pillow to my chest and started to cry. I wanted to call Paul, but his phone was off during his work shifts. I considered calling my parents, but they would only freak out and threaten to pull me out of school. I could have texted my brothers, but... 
They would have insisted on camping outside my door, jonesing to punch anyone in the face who dared to walk by my house. I didn't feel the need to bother Morgan or Grace about this. They both had rides back home from class and wouldn't be putting themselves in danger walking the dark streets alone. Feeling utterly isolated and paralyzed from fear, I laid in my bed in the fetal position for at least another hour. I would have stayed that way forever if it wasn't for my aching bladder begging me to use the bathroom. I pulled myself off my mattress and tiptoed to the toilet. As soon as it flushed, I heard my phone beep. It was a text from Morgan. So, me and the girls decided to go to the bar after class, and I kinda lost my keys, so I need you to let me in. I read the text that was filled with typos and nonsensical emojis. Okay, I texted back, not in the mood for a drunk roommate. I fiddled with my phone for a bit, losing myself in my Facebook and Instagram feed, until I heard something at the door. It was a knocking sound. First, it was dull, like a polite knock you'd prattle on your parents' bedroom door before entering. But then it got louder and more assertive, like the members of a Christian cult banging on your door to tell you the good news. Then the doorbell began to ring over and over again. My chest constricted. It was a Thursday, and now I was supposed to answer the door. I peered out my front bedroom window, but I couldn't get a full view of the porch. It had to be Morgan, I thought. Of course it's her. She's drunk and stupid like this, and she's just banging on the door to be silly. I crept downstairs, mentally swearing at the front door for not having a peephole or a side window. I placed my hands on the knob. Its cold metal made me shiver. The doorbell rang again and again. All right, I yelled out, mad at Morgan for being so persistent. I opened the door to see the man in black standing in front of me once again. He lunged forward with his large muddy boots leaving tracks on the white tiled floor. He grabbed me by the throat and screamed, Why are you doing this to me? In a rush of anger and adrenaline, I reached up and yanked back his hood. I recognized his face. He was a guy I kind of knew from my freshman dorm. He lived on the same floor as me, and we'd sometimes pass each other in the halls. I think we might have even studied together a few times when we had the same class. Marco, I asked. Of course. Who else would it be? Any other men whose hearts you've ripped out and lives you've destroyed? I stood there with my jaw hanging. And what? Now you're gonna stand there and act like you're completely clueless? He grabbed at his dark wavy hair as if he was trying to pull it out from his scalp. You've ruined me, don't you understand? He fell to his knees and began to cry. And now you won't even talk to me, acknowledge my presence or anything? I have to resort to following you around like a lunatic just to know how you're doing? I miss you so much. He wrapped his arms around my legs and sobbed. I bent down. I'm sorry you think I've hurt you in some way, but I have to be honest. I don't know what you're talking about. He stood up again, staring at me with his dark eyes full of both tears and hatred. So you have no memory of us? No memory of all the texts we've sent? How we poured our hearts out to each other, discussing the most sensitive and vulnerable things? Those nights we'd stay up late, messaging each other about what we'd like to do in bed? And those photos, I mean, fine, forget about the conversations, maybe I'm just some guy to you, but at least remember who you've sent those kinds of photos to. Marco, I began making my voice soft. We have never had any conversations, sexual or otherwise. I've never sent you any photos. 
I'm sorry, but I think you imagined the whole thing. You might need to get some help. No, they're real, look! He swiped open his phone and showed me a long string of text messages with a contact saved as Fiona. What number have you been texting me at? I asked. He looked at the screen and said, 646-555-1708. That's not my number. I'm from Boston, so I wouldn't have a New York area code, I explained to him. He looked at me like his world had just come crashing down, but I pressed on. Can I see those photos I allegedly sent? He pulled them up. There were three photos of me in black lingerie laying across a bed. Well, it was my face, but definitely not my body. Wait, I said to him, I've seen those images before. I dashed to my living room and pulled out an old Victoria's Secrets catalog Morgan kept laying around. I flipped through it until I found Adriana Lima in the exact same position on the exact same bed wearing the exact same lacy black bra and panty set. See, I said pointing to the catalog, someone photoshopped my head on this model. This isn't me. Marco grew pale. Oh my god. I've been so stupid, he said, holding up his sleeve to block his face. I was so mad at you for making me fall in love with you and then breaking my heart by telling me to never talk to you again. And the whole time, it wasn't even you. I put my arm across Marco's back and guided him into the kitchen. I sat him down at the table. He looked up to me with dark, sad eyes. It made my heart twinge with pain. I heated up a mug of hot water and tossed in a tea bag of chamomile while he wiped tears away from his face. Why are you being so nice to me after I was such a psycho to you? He asked as I handed him the cup and took a seat across from him. Because someone hurt you. Badly, I reached out and touched his hand to comfort him. He looked up at me and we locked eyes for a moment. Under his unkempt mane of thick black hair and an outfit of dark clothes too big for his thin body, he was surprisingly cute. Since freshman year, his acne had cleared up, leaving perfect olive skin to cover his sharp cheekbones and jawline. Um, how did you get that number? I stammered, turning away from his glance. It was about a month ago, at the start of the semester, he said. That blonde girl you live with. She came up to me. I think her name is Megan? Morgan, I said. Yeah, her. She came running up to me as I was walking back to the dorms. She told me you had a crush on me since freshman year, but were too shy to say anything. She gave me what I thought was your number. She said if I had made the first move, you'd be a sure thing. She said that? I asked, my blood burning hot with rage. Yeah, I mean, at first I doubted her because you're so pretty and I didn't think you'd even remember me, but I let myself get my hopes up, he explained. And then you responded, and we spent the last month texting each other constantly. I fell in love with you or whoever was pretending to be you, and then you cut me off or they cut me off, and it hurt like nothing I'd ever felt before. I know it's sad. I've just never had a girlfriend before, and I always struggled to feel comfortable talking to girls, and the fact that you wanted to talk to me, and we had this connection, or at least I thought we did, losing that connection was the worst thing I ever felt. And when you broke up with me without any warning, I went insane. I had to know what you were doing. I had to find out why you left me so suddenly. I even... He reached down into the small, over-the-shoulder backpack he was wearing, and lifted up several envelopes. I even went through your mail. I'm sorry. I was going to give it back to you as soon as we started talking again. Really, I am so sorry. Embarrassment swept across his face as he held out a pile of mail. I took the heap out of his hand and ripped through it, tossing catalogs and junk mail to the side until I got it. My second letter from Charlotte. I knew it was there. I could sense it the whole time. 
In my hand, I held another yellowing envelope with looping handwriting spelling out my name and address with an antiquated stamp in the top corner. No, 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 I murmured to myself as I opened the letter. This can't be happening again. The Dead Letters Podcast is written and produced by me, VP Morris. If you enjoyed today's episode, please help support the show by leaving a five-star review. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.